Hello, and welcome to Gay for Horror, the show where not all the movies are gay, but I sure am. How are you? I'm uh, beyond thrilled to talk about The Invisible Man, the 2020 Lee Winnell Invisible Man, uh, in case there was confusion. Uh, I'm, I, I, I just, I have nothing bad to say. I really, uh, I not only do I think that this is a film I would change not one frame of, uh, but also, I, I think, I really think it's one of the great modern genre films. And I'll, I'll break down why. I also think it, I also think it is, um, perhaps incidentally, but certainly in my experience of it, uh, a really queer film. And, or at least a queer-friendly film, even though there aren't any queer people in it. Uh, and I'll tell you why in the spoiler section. Uh, in the non-spoiler section, I'll just say this, I mean, I think that... Th- uh, often, if I'm asked to recount a specifically uh, engaging or exciting film viewing experience, one of my, my my most sort of precious ones is the first and I think still only time I ever watched Black Swan, the Darren Aronofsky movie with Natalie Portman, for which she won the Oscar. Rightfully so. Uh, you know... Uh, and and part of that film that I, I when I saw it I had been uh, really starved for cinematic experiences. I was in the midst of getting a master's uh, in cinema studies at NYU, and I was also working full time in a preschool setting, and I was very tired. Uh, I would I was working eight to three at preschool, and then going to class six to ten uh, most nights of the week and then on the weekends I was writing and, and reading and uh, for classes and so I just did that whole semester I remember seeing hardly any movies which is very rare for me I actually well that's not true I saw many movies in the context of class because it was in a cinema studies program thankfully uh, but I didn't go to movie theaters hardly at all. I think all, the only movies I saw in theaters that entire semester were The Social Network. Uh, and then on the la- the very last day of the semester, I had to go um, from where I was living in Brooklyn into Manhattan to drop off my final paper for one of my classes for a professor who refused to own a computer and therefore did not accept digital submissions. So we had to manually turn in paper copies to his mailbox by the final exam date. I guess you could call that quirky. Anyway, uh, but I had I had to go in and make this trip, this like forty minute train ride in, uh, and I was like, well, fuck it, I'm gonna go in and turn in this last paper. It's the last thing I have to do for the entire semester, uh, and then I'm gonna walk over to Union Square and see whatever movie I most want to see. And the movie I most want to see was Black Swan. And uh, anyway. I think some combination of the fact that it is great and also that I was so starved for movie-going experiences made that, I just remember at the end just kind of like exhaling with this great sense of kind of relief and joy and terror. Uh, And I remember just like how visceral and how engaging, exciting experience it was and what just a, a kind of release I felt at the end of it. And it just was the most wrapped I can ever remember being in a movie. Uh... And I tell you that story because what I thought after I saw The Invisible Man is that like I had the same feeling. 
though I'm not starved for seeing movies, thank goodness, I've seen many lately. Uh, but I had this just, I was completely enthralled. I had, uh, even though my analytic brain was engaged, uh, it wasn't, it was not sort of probing the frame and thinking more than it was watching or, or enjoying. It was like, I was fully enwrapped in the movie. And when it ended, I just sighed out this like incredible, wonderful, perhaps even more joyful and wonderful because of um, some of the differences between how these movies end, which I won't spoil, uh, but just kind of elated and, and just so pleased because I think that this is perfect. I just, I, I really think it's perfect. I, there's so much that I love um, and I'll go through in spoilers what I most loved, which by the way, I'm going to do non-spoilers um, and then I will ring a bell, which sounds like this. And that's how you'll know I've officially switched to spoilers. And I know that I could tell you I'm switching to spoilers, but the bell makes it festive. Uh, but I'm going to stick with non-spoilers for a bit. I think I can do a little bit in non-spoilers without going past the point of no return, so to speak. Um, I don't watch trailers. This is a known, this is a thing that I say often. I don't watch trailer because I don't want to know anything. Uh, but I had watched about 30 seconds of this trailer uh, just because I truly had no idea what it was going to be. Uh, I knew it was some sort of version of the Invisible Man. I didn't know what that version would look like. So I, I had, you know, I had the boilerplate premise going in. Um, I will say there, I know that there was a sort of kerfuffle that the trailer was too, gave too much information to which I say, don't watch trailers, Mary. I told you, uh, don't want, don't, don't just, just don't do it. it. Don't, don't watch it and then complain about it. Just don't do it. Uh, but I, I having seen watch the full trailer <laughs> after seeing the movie, um, I don't think that, I think you're fine. I think that, uh, I think that. The trailer is actually good in that it sets up the premise of the movie, more or less, uh, and it it does not contain much footage outside of the first 30 to 40 minutes, which is what I think a good trailer probably should do, uh, or as best as they can do. Because also, you know, the entire concept of, tra concept of the trailer, of a trailer, is that it's going to ruin things for you. It's going to show you things that would otherwise be new visual information. Uh, there's one shot in the trailer that I wish was not the trailer, uh, as a, in retrospect, as having seen the movie. And I, and I have seen this shot because it's not only in the trailer, it's in like 30-second commercials and things that I could hardly avert my eyes from all the time religiously. Sometimes I sort of occasionally would glance at a screen and it would be playing uh but i don't know if i should describe it there's a there's a moment where uh oh there's one moment in the trailer that i think is just visual information i would have liked to have discovered in the movie let's say that uh but otherwise but it is but it is still it is still from it's from just at the edge of kind of the 40 minute mark or so of where things are really coming into focus as to what is truly happening. And it's just on the cusp of it. And so I guess it's in trailer world, it's fine. Uh, but as someone who doesn't watch trailers, I, you know, I wish I had managed to quite avert my eyes of every digital representation. 
of the trailer uh, in my pop-up windows and, you know, web ads and television ads and print ads, etc. Um, but the trailer doesn't ruin the movie. Most of what's in most of what's in the trailer is truly from the, the, the setup of the movie. And, and by and large, I guess that's the best it could be. What I will say is this. Um, the trailer didn't does not really, I think, convey how visually sophisticated and excellently filmed this movie is. Uh, and in part because I guess because it's spliced up to 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 any kind of the trailer looks like a fairly conventionally shot horror movie with lots of kind of rapid editing. Um, this movie is not. It is it is truly not a visually conventional movie. Um, and it's sometimes hard to categorize what makes something visually conventional. Uh, and uh, I can explain this by saying that I saw The Invisible Man, and then after that I saw Brahms The Boy 2. And if <laughs> and if you watch those things next to each other, I think this illuminates the difference between a, a visually sophisticated and a visually conventional movie. Uh, I, I don't know if it interests anyone for me to break down what the differences are, um, but I think in short, what I can say is that this is a film where I truly believe every shot was carefully thought through. Uh, perhaps every shot storyboarded. Uh, the opening sequence, which I will not give away much of the nature of, but the opening sequence is completely spellbinding. It is like top tier suspense filmmaking. It reminded me instantly of like the best of the best of suspense filmmakers, truly. Uh, and and uh, and I am a film nerd and, and an asshole and a snob and all the bad things. I don't care. I like I, I I thought of Alfred Hitchcock and I thought of David Fincher and I thought in parts of John Carpenter and in parts of Stanley Kubrick and those were those were things that were in my living in my brain, watching the movie throughout. Uh, but especially that first sequence, which I would I would gather first of all was planned with just every second of it. Uh, and I also wouldn't have, wouldn't be surprised if it was like storyboarded as a pitch for the movie because it's so captivating. Uh, and it truly is. Uh, I kind of, I kind of, I dig and live for a very like Hitchcock style. Um, and in a sense, maybe derived from like more like Eisenstein even, which is just that like every image is this resounding, just visually splendid choice, right? Like you can pause every image and think about what it is and what it means and how it works. Uh, and that's kind of the, st the style here. It's very intentional. Uh, it's very visually beautiful in terms of cinematography and composition. And also the choices in cinematography and composition are interesting, like they're, they, I can, I could talk endlessly about them. I'm frustrated that I don't have them in front of me now to explain them better in the spoiler section. Uh, but I could talk endlessly about some of these choices. Um, but what I will say is, uh, you know, just a shot, a shot of the way Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss looks out at the camera or a shot of the way that she very specifically moves the hand of her, uh, you know, husband, boyfriend, I forget the nature of their, are they married? Is that a thing? I don't remember. 
the, the way she moves her partner's hand from her ball, like the 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 shot of it, the choices in the performance of it, just the just, just, every, every little bit of it is is such a specific, careful choreographed dance. Uh, the fact that the entire opening sequence has basically no dialogue and conveys everything visually. It conveys suspense visually, but also conveys emotion visually. It conveys character information visually. It conveys, it conveys plot information visually. Um, there's, there, oh my gosh, I don't want to spoil anything, but because this is non-spoilers, but, but there's just this way there is, th- what is happening is communicated so clearly non-verbally and it's so beautiful. Uh, because in so many movies we talk about this like incredibly s- simplistic idea of show don't tell, and 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 it's so simplistic, and yet and when you watch so many movies, they can't stop telling you. So uh, so and just to have this, to have everything just communicated so perfectly and clearly and specifically, and and to have. The, the layers of suspense be conveyed through sound and image. Uh, so there's this moment, uh, there's a couple of moments in the movie where you hear the source of something before you see it or you understand what it is, which is a great kind of use of suspense because there's um, there's there's a kind of loud noise and then we cut to the source and the source is ultimately a little bit, uh, you know, un- unimportant or superficial, but the fact of the noise, it and the the second where it could be anything is so nerve-wracking um and then you know the visual allows that source of the noise to slide into frame so clearly and the sound and the image work together to create this terrifying moment that's ultimately very simple uh but but in so many other films that would never connect or or make the audience gasp because the the deliberate choice of having the loud sound designing the loud sound having the loud sound breathe in the space of the theater for a split second before we understand what caused it. That's just so careful. And it, it's, it's so taken for granted, but it takes so much time to create some, it, it takes, it takes, it takes so many people and so much time to create this little suspense moment. And I, what pe- people like me uh, who are obnoxiously kind of like adulating certain films and, and kind of chastising other films, what we're talking like what, what I'm talking about other people are talking about it's not random like it's not um uh I, I'm not saying that snob appeal isn't a thing but I would say that I think some of the rhetoric around snob appeal is um a kind of ignorant projection <laughs> such that the, like the belief like I really dislike when people say oh the critics hated this movie I'm gonna like it uh, I think I think if that's who you are in the world, I think that you've lost something in terms of your ability to envision something grand, <laughs> something grander for yourself and others. Um, and that's not to say that critical consensus is an accurate measure, but if you can't fathom in your world to take into account what people say and to use that information proactively for your own understanding of something or to disagree with it you know logically and on the basis of evidence as opposed to just blanket dismissing the consensus of a body of people who do spend time and energy in trying to 
think uh, intelligently about film or any other piece of media, um, you know, you can, you can hear out other people and, and it'll be fine and you can disagree with them. And that's, it, it's really not as, uh, it's not as banal and as simple as people would, would have it be. Um, I'm also super frustrated by the, uh, the kind of, well, two things. One, making synonymous this idea of quote unquote art horror with A24 as a company calling A24 horror. I'm happy to celebrate the fact that A24 has a really great horror library, but uh, horror that is sort of artistically uh, sophisticated, visually sophisticated with great cinematography choices and great camera movement choices and great sound design choices uh, is not synonymous with only one studio and that's bullshit. Nor is it the case that only studios that distribute to art house theaters uh, are making that kind of horror. The Invisible Man is as carefully created as any horror movie, uh, you know, and as are many of the Blumhouse horror movies. I mean, certainly the Jordan Peele ones, we, we've all kind of seen and I think noticed that, but others, I mean, Mike Flanagan's Oculus is incredibly sophisticated in terms of cinematography and, and, and composition, but also editing. That's one of the most interestingly edited movies I can recall in, in contemporary cinema. So, uh, so simplistically reproducing the idea that there's like a snob horror and then real horror fan horror and that those are separate and that they don't intersect or that the distinction is cultural rather than aesthetic. I think that's bullshit. I think that there's certainly some people in some, you know, I remember being in uh, a screening of this incredibly bad movie. Oh, well, sorry. I don't usually say movies are bad. A movie that I didn't personally care for uh, called me and Earl and the dying girl, which is, it's okay. I'm sorry. It's bad. I'm just gonna say it's bad. It's a bad movie. Uh, it's not a horror movie. It, it it's just a really bad teen movie about uh, a dying girl who helps a boy figure out who he should be in life. And because she's dying of cancer, he realizes he should like buck up and go to college and all that bullshit. Why are teenage girls always? Why is everything that's marketed to teenage girls involve them dying of fucking cancer? What's that about? What? <laughs> What's that about? Uh, but I remember being in the theater and uh, with a friend of mine, and there was this young girl behind me, and you know, bless her good heart, I'm sure in her mind she was reaching for lofty cultural aspirations, but she literally was there with her two or three teenage friends. It was clearly the first time they'd ever come to this art house independent theater, uh, and and she literally said as she sat down. Guys, this is like indie. This is like different. This is like so indie. Um, <laughs> and it was, and my friend and I just sort of, it was so cute, but it was so silly. Just this completely internalized sense of the different, like the, that you were in a different world and that this was going to be radical. Which, by the way, me and Earl and the Dying Girl is not, is not a radical film. Uh, it's it's basically the fault in our stars for half the budget or whatever. It's like not, it's not that, it was not that serious, but I, her internalized sense of the, the, the culture of indie as this thing that's so much better and more interesting and that her friends wouldn't understand. Guys, you're not going to understand this because it's like indie. <laughs> it was cute. It was sweet. I, you know, I'm sure she meant well. I'm not particularly interested in hurting her feelings. Uh, but I don't think that's a great strategy. I mean, you know, that would be my advice. I don't think it's a great strategy to internalize the difference between 
wide release uh, cinema or independent limited release cinema so stringently. Uh, and all of this is going about a way of saying, I'm so touched and charmed and pleased, or was and I still am, watching this movie and thinking back on this movie, how beautiful it is. And there are cho- I mean, there are choices that are like, God, like who someone was thoughtful and and did this. Um, there's um, there's small things like. Um, Water is a motif in the movie, and it it repeats it repeats in certain obvious ways um, where it's central. Uh, every version of an invisible character story often involves liquids because liquids, quite obviously, are, are a very good way to reveal the form of an invisible figure. I don't think it's a shocking idea nor a spoiler to to point that out. Uh, if you've seen Hollow Man, <laughs> I watched Hollow Man. I think on like HBO. By the way, that Kevin Bacon movie. Mostly because I believe I read somewhere that he was naked in it. I think he is naked in it. Kevin Bacon was naked a lot in the late 90s. Um, And I think I watched that whole movie just to try and see Kevin Bacon naked. I was a gay child of the night. It's a whole thing. Someone someone has a blog. Someone has a blog somewhere about being a gay child of the nineties. I'm sure it's riveting. Listen, but you know, if you've seen any of those versions of an invisible man type story, liquid is a thing. Uh, and anyway, so there, so there is a there there is a, the movie opens with water. There's a very climactic scene that involves water, uh, but then there's like these even smaller things that make me so happy. Like uh, there's this one sort of transitional shot, and it's just the side of a building, but the side of the building is clearly reflecting some unseen body of water. So in this sort of just it's just a shot of the city, um, and it's but it, but the way that the building looks the building looks almost um oh, what's the, what's the word for like not solid i don't know what the word is it lo- it looks like it has the sort of movement and texture of a body of water in this solid mass um which is visually reminiscent of what the representation of invisibility often looks like so if you have ever seen an invisible person movie uh in the age of cgi there's often this kind of like sort of between corporeal and incorporeal um, sort of viscous goo body, this sort of like transparent, translucent, uh, kind of like wave of the ocean kind of shape that has a a sort of an uncertainty and a transparency to it. Uh, And the water kind of invokes that. And then there's this great moment where... um, Elizabeth Moss, uh, her, she goes to visit her sister, and her sister slams the door in her face. And it, the choice of the door is this like old timey like film noir door with that like textured glass that almost looks like waves, so that you could see through it, but just enough so that what's on the other side looks kind of like a like a sort of amorphous uh, kind of uh, has like a cascading wave over the shape and it becomes obscured by this cascading wave effect in the glass sort of like a like a like a tempered shower glass so to speak too as well but i always associate with like detective doors from the 1940s (laughs) Uh, but so elizabeth moss's face in that shot through the door looks 
sort of like this, you know, rippling wave of water, this kind of like between the, you know, the solid and, and liquid. Um, and all of that is like so specific and takes so much time. And even if it was incidental, you know, I, you know, whether it was communicated to the, you know, the prop coordinator to have this kind of glass or, or whether someone just realized on the day that that kind of glass looked kind of like water and they could find a way to use that to continue the motif, whatever it is. It just means that someone at some point was paying attention in a way <laughs> that many other movies people are not. And so the reason why I get excited when I see this is because horror movies are, uh, even though horror movies are, I think, among the most innovative and exciting uh, studio films, especially genre films, especially, but um, you know, just among the most innovative and exciting films that, that Hollywood makes, uh, along with musicals, <laughs> which I think are the other most innovative and exciting, to be honest. Um, that's where my worlds collide uh, as a gay horror fan. Uh, but but I, even though I think horror is really innovative and, and has so much potential, I mean, there are a lot of people who throw in the towel and kind of, uh, you know, make, make, make faster choices and maybe don't pay close enough attention. Uh, and and lo and behold, that in of itself, I'm sure, is still a very difficult taxing process. And I'm sure it's it feels it it feels like they're making the choices on the set. I'm sure it feels like they've done everything that they could. Uh, but visually, you can distinguish, I think, pretty easily between something that is more visually conventional and serviceable, and something that has a very deliberate, specific vision. Uh, I'm going to go over what some things in the style of Invisible Man that I want to talk about in the spoiler section. Um, but I want to just hint at in the non-spoilers, and then I will go into it more in depth in the spoilers, though, is I'd like to hint at um, what I feel like is especially queer about the film or how the film works for queer people. Um, I don't want to explain all of why, because I think it requires that I talk to you about the plot, and I don't want to ruin that. But I think if you just think about what you know from the trailer and what you know from uh you know, the references here are obviously there are obviously references to things like the female gothic of the 1940s films like rebecca and suspicion and gaslight which um you know we live in this incredibly interesting 2020 world where gaslight which is a, a you know a, a term that comes from the uh gosh well there's two versions is there <laughs> but from the from the the classical hollywood film uh, the most famous one is the classical Hollywood one with uh, Ingrid Bergman and Joseph Cotton, the film called Gaslight, uh, which, by the way, uh, was based on a play by Patrick Hamilton, which was called, I believe, Angel Street, um, that was produced uh, theatrically, and then it was, there was a British movie in the early 40s, and then in the, like, the mid-40s, the American movie with Ingrid Bergman. Um, Patrick Hamilton, um, I don't know much about his life, and I've never found any interesting biographical detail about his life so i don't know if he was a queer writer personally uh but he's perhaps even better well i don't know if better he's also well known uh for writing the original play the rope which hitchcock made into the movie rope uh with um jimmy stewart and farley granger and John Dahl, uh, which is written by Arthur Lorenz. Uh, and Rope was, or is among, I think, some of the most sort of notoriously queer subtextual works of the classical Hollywood period. It's a movie, if you don't, if you, if you don't know, um, a movie uh, about a, it's sort of based on the Leopold and Loeb case. It's these two very wealthy, affluent, 
young men uh, played by Farley Granger and John Dahl who uh, murder a colleague of theirs for sport, basically, or to prove that they can because they've sort of intellectualized their experience such that they believe that they are superhuman and uh, and that they have mastery over life and death and are of more value. Um, and the entire movie is really founded on the very obvious presumption that they are uh, having a romantic and sexual relationship. And it's never addressed because it could not, it could not practically be addressed in the time of the Hollywood Production Code, which would have been in full effect in the 1940s. Uh, so you can't say that anyone's gay and you can't have characters who are gay, uh, but you can have two men who share an apartment and you can not distinguish that they, <laughs> that they, you could just leave it up to everyone else to put together the information from there. Um, and, and that movie and others really draw on some of the historical connections between queerness and murderousness, uh, which, uh, which happens a lot in the 1940s. Patrick Hamilton also, by the way, uh, wrote, uh, Hangover Square. Hangover Square is eventually turned into a, a movie starring Larry Kagar. Larry Kagar is one of the very notable, uh, 1940s queer actors. He was mostly known for playing villains and killers. Uh, he often uh, he often was only the lead if the lead was a killer, <laughs> such as in Hangover Square or the remake of The Lodge from the 1940s that John Braun made. Um, I love Larry Gagar. I don't recall if I've mentioned Larry Gagar prior to this, but um, Larry Gagar basically... Uh, Oh gosh, he's a really tragic story because he really wanted to be uh, a Hollywood actor, and he worked really hard. But he, because he was an, uh, generally considered overweight for the role of a leading man, he was not cast as many lead roles. He also was openly gay within Hollywood, which was the sort of fascinating case that you could be. Uh, because Hollywood was such a closed system of peers and professionals, you could be openly gay within Hollywood, even though your your public relations would incredibly, your public relations, which were funded by the studio whose contract you, you had, or with whom you had a contract, uh, your public relations would incredibly refute that and deny that, um, you know, publicly. But within the system of Hollywood, you could kind of be privately out. So he was fairly openly gay and, uh, and just, uh, anyway, he suffered a lot uh, for. He suffered a lot at the the expense of what people thought was desirable, uh, which was straightness and and thinness. And he basically committed himself to the idea that he would lose a drastic amount of weight and kind of start to pass as straight and would therefore become hireable in leading man type roles. And in that process, he basically starved himself and took pills and died of, uh, of heart condition or a heart uh, issue that, that is largely suspected to have come from the excess of diet pills and, and, and exercise um, to the point of, of physical harm. Anyway, and if you watch the movie Hangover Square, which I highly recommend because Larry Kukar is brilliant in it and it also has a great score by um, Bernard Herrmann. It's wonderful. Uh, but uh, but if you watch that movie, because they did reshoots on that movie, you can actually see his weight drastically change from scene to scene. 
needless to say, I, uh, this is sort of a tangent because, <laughs> because I love uh, queer classical Hollywood. Uh, but, uh, but Patrick Hamilton, who wrote Gaslight, who has all these interesting connections to queer texts and queer performers. Oh, I think, by the way, um, Rope, um, Farley Granger came out as bisexual before he died. Um, and Arthur Lorenz, who was the screenwriter who uh, for Rope, um, uh, ha- wrote in his memoir about the fact that during the production of Rope that he and Farley Granger started a sexual relationship and they were basically dating uh, uh, to the knowledge of Hitchcock and everyone on set. Um, and I believe he sort of uh, characterized Hitchcock as being sort of... Uh, uh, kind of like ch- charmed and taken by the fact that his screenwriter and his one of his leading men were uh, fucking. Anyway, so so there's a lot of sort of queer history involved in b- both of those <laughs> both of those films based on Patrick Hamilton plays. N- neither of which is Gaslight. But getting back to Gaslight, and the <laughs> but just uh, if you haven't seen Gaslight, the the British version is actually better. Uh, it doesn't have Ingrid Bergman, but it's better. It's truly better. Um, it is. It, it, it's filmed in a way that's, I think, more interesting. Uh, but the the Inger Bergman version that more people have seen is also great. Um, anyway, the, the whole point is, Gas, this is a movie that's inspired by... F- <laughs> Listen, there was a point. I know that I know that I've got far away from it. We're gonna get back to it. The point is that this is a film that is inspired by classic female gothics, of which Gaslight is a very classic example. And it's made in 2020, which is a time where we've kind of taken the term gaslight and sought to redeploy it politically, which is to say to recognize the idea. Uh, politically, what was what was done in terms of plot in the movie has become a political concept, which is the the idea of trying to erase the experience of trauma, um, particularly for women and queer people and people of color. That that the establishment of power, power's ability and and desire to render people who point out their abuses and their manipulations mm-hmm. to render those people uh, or put to be publicly made seen as hysterical or emotional or unreliable that this is the sort of political use of that term gaslight in, in the movie gaslight in the play gaslight uh, basically uh, it's a husband who's trying to uh, prove that his his wife is insane and he's basically uh, manipulating her by affecting the lights and moving things around the house and so forth and so on. Um, which, by the way, uh, ends with a really, well, sorry, I wanted to spoil Gaslight. It ends with a great scene that, uh, and I won't spoil anything, it ends with a great scene that I think informs some of the ending of, of The Invisible Man brilliantly uh, <laughs> but so to make a, a riff on a 40 female gothic uh in this political moment of no trying to trying to erase the the pain and the abuses of power for pe- for women and people of color and queer people and, and other groups that are that are uh, marginalized um that 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 political that political usage of the term is very active and very available in urban dictionary. Um, so to make a female gothic now feels uh, so potent. For for I think I think universally, like one thing I would resist that I think some of the materials around this film have tried to impress upon it. I think. 100%. There's a way in which this speaks to, to contemporary politics about you know. Um, 
uh, holding people accountable for sexual abuse and, and, and sexual harassment and sexual violence against women. And, and that is 100% uh, important. And it is something that happens that I think the film can be read as a response to. But I think only reading it as a response to that is kind of diminishing some potential. Uh, and I think instead you might just... To, for me, this whole movie feels like it. what it taps into very beautifully is... Let's just say, <laughs> I'm going to switch to spoiler in a second. Let's just say in non-spoilers, let's just say it taps into uh, an anxiety around what it might mean to be on the other side of a system of power that has the strength and the resources to render you uh, helpless and to... Uh, through those resources, effectively make the people around you view you as hysterical, unreliable, uh, emotional, um, and that that avowing that problem is a response to gaslighting in the political conceptual sense, and I think that's really the the core strength of the movie. Uh, and that is all I will say in non-spoilers. <laughs> so I'm going to switch to spoilers, and I'm going to ring a physical bell. Uh, and, and now I'm going to talk spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie and you want to go see the movie and come back, that's lovely. Do that. Uh, if you have seen the movie and you want to hear what I would say about it, I will do that now for you. If you haven't seen the movie and you want to be spoiled, because I think those people exist, welcome. <laughs> okay. I have, I do have some notes for spoilers so that I can try to hit as many of the things. By the way, every time I record something like this, I, at the end, I stop and I, and I finish it, I post it, and then I think of five, five more things that, uh, that I didn't say. Um, and, and that's partly a consequence of, I don't. I can't bring myself to take notes during the movie or I just, cause I just want to be uh, in the movie. I used to write reviews uh, for my own, of my own accord on like a blog in college. And I, I, I don't like the experience of watching a movie and being think at the time thinking about what you're going to say in the review. I think like once your brain dislodges from the experience of the movie so strongly that you're thinking about what you're going to write when you get home. I just feel like it's it's ruined the moment. Okay, so the first thing I really wanted to do was to pick up on what I was just insinuating, <laughs> what I was just vaguely insinuating, but trying not to spoil for anyone who was interested in the movie but didn't want to know exactly what happens. Uh, I want to build on what feels especially intimately queer about the movie, even though it's not a movie by a queer filmmaker or about queer people. And, you know, as someone who studies queerness in especially horror and, uh, and classical Hollywood, uh, these are not genres where queer people are most notably present. Or Classical horror is not a genre, it's a period. Uh, horror is not a genre that very strongly features queer characters, nor is the classical Hollywood period. Well, the classical Hollywood period features zero named queer characters, although subtextually is gay as fuck. Um, and, and so many queer creators as well, and directors and writers. And uh, anyway, that's a whole history that we don't have time to get into. 
but I, I'm really, I feel sort of affectionately attached to things that are queer in meaning. And I think that uh, maybe not everyone would agree with this, but I'd rather watch something that feels incredibly um, in sync with a queer experience, regardless of whether the characters are queer. I'd rather watch that than watch something that is sort of flagrantly ordinary in which the characters self-describe as queer. Uh, and what this movie gets at, I think, is so beautiful and heartbreaking and vivid to me. Um, and the scene that really stands out, uh, and I, I think this, I think this scene can be read in so many ways. And I'm not saying it's only a scene that has queer meaning. I'm saying that it is a scene that lends itself to have queer meaning among many other possible meanings. Uh, but it's this scene where. Uh, so Elizabeth Moss has identified that the that her her ex is invisible and tormenting her and and he has driven her to the point of being fully uh, restrained, arrested, and institutionalized. Um, and she meets with his brother, who. Uh, in what I, th I just think is the most egregious and awful feeling scene of the movie, tries to basically broker a deal with her to restore her life, to make her legally sane again, to make her no longer a criminal, to make to to to, to remove all of the systemic pressures that have been leveraged against her if she will just concede to return to him, uh, particularly with her child. Uh, and that scene is wonderful in the sci-fi horror realm because for me, sci-fi horror is at its best when it takes, uh, it uses the conventions of science fiction and horror to create a scene that is incredibly emotionally true, even though the circumstance is fantastical. The, the idea of a man trying to leverage all of his resources against a former partner who is a woman and offering to relieve that, if she will, admit subservience, essentially. Uh, that is an egregious and heartbreaking scene. And I don't think it's unlike a lot of what happens in real life. Uh, most often, there aren't invisible people uh, in the strictest sense, but that type of an offer, I'm sure, has happened. Uh, I'm sure of it. And as a queer person, I mean, that is, to me, that feels, whether this, whether you've had this said to you directly or whether it's a personal understanding that you come to, every person who is queer, especially people who are visibly queer, uh, has essentially sat at that table and understood or been told, if you will just not be who you are, you can have all of these things back. Right, uh, you won't you won't be persecuted. You won't be 
restricted in terms of your employment, in terms of your housing. You won't be discriminated against. If you will just give up this part of yourself, this freedom for yourself, you can have everything back. And for, I mean, for queer people, that's sometimes just very literal. I mean, you have children who are young teenagers who self-describe as queer or trans, who are forced out of their homes. And at some point, there's this conversation, either externally or internally, that is, if, if I'm willing to forego this part of myself, I can have my family back. I could have the support of my family. I could be okay. I could feel safe and everything would be fixed, but you'd be forgoing your identity. Uh, and for those reasons, that scene just feels to me incredibly important. It's a really heartbreaking and moving scene. Uh, because I really feel that way. I think, and I think a lot of people really feel that way. I think we have all wrestled with the idea of what if you could pass as straight or pass as cisgender, all of the things that might be opened up to you. Um, you know, and the particular pressures that have been used to leverage people into that position. Um, you know, uh, the thing about feminism and about uh, queer rights and civil rights and all these things, uh, we live in this time that's interestingly ahistorical for all the information that's available. Um, I am continually surprised when, uh, especially when I talk to young people, how little they understand what the historical role was of those movements. And part of that might just be to, to blame on what's taught in schools, or you know maybe it's, it's all of our faults for not repeating this enough and loudly enough and often enough. But I, you know, I routinely work with college aid students who don't know that it has been illegal to be gay. Uh, that people were arrested and harassed and institutionalized for being gay, that it was legally a mental illness to be gay until the 1970s in the U.S., uh, that gay people were rounded up and arrested, they were institutionalized, they, you know, that, it, that this was not, um, that the gay rights movement wasn't, uh, we all woke up one day and wanted to wear pink. The gay rights movement was a concentrated response to systemic oppression and the gay liberation movement that came out of stonewall in the late 60s early 70s really was an anti-institutional movement and that's been somewhat lost in conversation uh, but it was a movement that was anti-capitalist anti-government anti-religion anti-nuclear family it was recognizing that because we are gay the police arrest us doctors tell us we are ill uh, we are able to have our rights taken away and put into mental institutions against our will. We are able to be forced into forms of physical torture like electroshock therapy. And that those things had been happening um, and that that was what the response was to. Uh, and, and much like the women's movement and, and, and anti-racist movement, civil rights movements, um, you know, these are obviously responses to very specific historical historical experiences uh 
and also responses to things that were not illegal, <laughs> that arresting and harassing gay people was legal, it was the law. Uh, you know, it has been illegal. Um, so many things have been illegal and legality has been used so often systemically to oppress certain kinds of people, whether it's the ability to vote as a woman or a black person, or the ability to, to uh, get an education as a woman or a black person, which are things that had to be fought for. Uh, you know, the, there, like, there is a history where, where your identity, your race, your gender, your sexuality has been made illegal, and the language of legality and sanity and civility and respectability have all been used structurally to marginalize certain people. And the idea of someone sitting in front of you and saying, if you let this go and you acknowledge the king, the metaphorical king, right, all of this systemic power that works at, to the advantage of certain kinds of people who are wealthy people, straight people, white people, men, uh, that if you acknowledge this and you agree to subservience, we will we will take our foot off your neck. Uh, and to watch uh, her say no to that is really beautiful. And uh, it's part of what makes this, I think, a very special movie. And it makes it a movie that is so above and beyond the immediate entertainment pleasure of it. Um, there is undoubtedly a really strong message to the movie and a really strong engagement with cultural ideas in this movie. Uh, that being said, it is also an excellently made suspense film in the truest sense and in a very classic sense. Um, I like, by the way, and I think this, this stems from that same choice, uh, but I like um, some of the choices that they make in terms of how they represent uh, her, her and her sanity. Um, this is not a movie that really engages for a very long time with the idea that she might be crazy, which is at the root of most female gothic narratives. Um, most of these movies, so like the Alfred Hitchcock Suspicion is a really classic one, which is so strange if you watch it because it was incredibly um, altered after production. Uh, but Alfred Hitchcock's Suspicion, you know, it's Joan Fontaine thinking that she's crazy because uh, she thinks her husband's trying to kill her. And she's not sure if she's right or she's wrong. And, of course, in the classical Hollywood system, in, uh, in, in a world where it was sort of forbidden for characters to be, for movie star matinee idol stars to be characterized as violent or vicious or, or harmful, uh, that movie was altered so that Cary Grant, who's one of the biggest movie stars of the 1940s, uh, is not trying to kill her. He's just a nice guy, and she's just gotten the wrong idea. And uh, in Rebecca, there's an alteration to the fact that uh, Olivia's character was supposed to have murdered his first wife, but it's changed to an accident. Uh, and it, there's a sort of toothlessness to all of that, which is that it makes the women seem very hysterical and very crazy and very dismissible. Uh, the stories play with the idea that they are being made to look crazy and dismissible, but then the movies themselves underline that by making them exaggerate, making them into characters who read into something incorrectly. Uh, and so the fact that this movie doesn't really 
you know, I don't think it really, truly entertains the idea that there isn't an Invisible Man at all. I think it lets her, she knows what's happening immediately. She understands what's happening immediately. She presents us with what is happening immediately, and she is correct. Uh, you know, the fact that people characterize her in ways that are dismissive uh, does not, uh, the movie doesn't agree with them. The movie doesn't let them have much space to look right. Uh, and I think that's very responsible and respectable. Uh, you know, we see we see footprints so early in the movie, so that we're, the idea that she's, she's just imagining this, I think is not a sincere one. Uh, and I think that's a great choice. I think um, I reviewed The Turning, which I quite liked, but I did read some response from the disability community about um, thinking that because the movie engages with the question of sanity, that it sort of falls into the category of ableism. And I don't know quite what I would say about that. I haven't thought it through enough, but my take, I guess, loosely was that I didn't think that that movie made a strong, took a strong stance with regard to what was real and what was not. I think it kind of lived in this ambiguous imagined space. Uh, but but it, it but that is a factor. And I think that this movie avoids that, which I think is great. I also think it's a really great choice, by the way, that they, uh, that there isn't a scene of domestic abuse or violence, that we start with the escape. Uh, this movie is about the escape from violence, domestic violence and domestic abuse. It is about the repercussions of that escape. The, the thing that sets off the problem is the angry, jealous, possessive response to the escape. Uh, it is not a film that lingers on the fact of abuse. Uh, I think this is an incredibly good choice. Uh, last year, there was a lot of conversation about uh, whether you need to see violence. And I remember vividly, I saw it, chapter two, uh, which is not a film I felt strongly about, to be honest, uh, but which very memorably uh, featured a, opened with a, vicious, queer-bashing murder um, that included no primary characters and uh, characters who, who I think were, were barely, if at all, even named. Uh, and a lot of queer people felt strongly that that was a poor decision, uh, that it was, that, that, that that was not a film about violence against queer people that it didn't need to be, that to invoke it felt sensationalistic, it felt unnecessary, that because the characters are not, there are not a, a, a characters aplenty, uh, you know, queer characters represented, even though there is a subplot that suggests one character is probably queer um, as, you know, as almost an afterthought, you know, it's not something that is dealt with primarily, it's a kind of consequence of resolution, which is a kind of P.S. I'm gay uh, trope, uh, <laughs> where after shows end, or after books end, or after movies end, people say, oh yeah, he was gay the whole time. Uh, that's not the best way to do that either. Uh, but, it, uh, you know, and there was some, some response that said, oh, well, it's showing how bad it is, and it's not good, because it's Pennywise is evil, and and so it's it's not like it's making it look good. And some people said, "Oh well, you need to see this because you need to address it. You need to see it." I don't think you need to see it. 
I think most queer people have lived or can imagine or have seen or know truly to their core what that is like. And I don't think we need to look at it in a movie that doesn't even feature us prominently. It's not even about us. It's not even our story. And the only time our name is being used is for a shocking death. I think it was a poor choice. And I remember seeing Hustlers about a week or two later. And Hustlers, uh, I think, makes really good choices about how to represent the some of the precariousness and some of the gender imbalance of power in sex work without really lingering on the men in the movie or giving them space or really emphasizing the mistreatment of the women. It gives you enough to know that these things are happening. We know that these things are happening. We know that there are men who are who are abusing their position. They, we know that there are men who are mistreating these women. We know that the women in the movie are sometimes pressured into situations that uh, that demean them. And the movie doesn't fail to acknowledge that. Uh, it acknowledges that, but it doesn't do it in a way where it seems to be obsessed with the pain of women. Uh, and I and I, I think this uh, I think the Invisible Man makes a similar choice that I really respect, which is I don't think it's a movie, even though it is. There is so much terror, and there are so many suspenseful moments. I, I think the choices to omit the scenes of domestic violence or start with the scene of domestic violence, um, I think it it is. Uh, I think it manages to avert that kind of obsession. Uh, because we don't we don't really we don't need it. I think this movie and others and hustlers and others, they prove that we don't need it. We don't need it. It's I think that's kind of a lie that people are have convinced themselves of. Uh, that we didn't need to watch queer people get attacked by homophobes and murdered at the start of eight chapter. We didn't need it. No one no it didn't add it didn't add anything. If you took it off of the movie, it would no one would have enjoyed the movie less. Um, it, I really, I like that choice. I like the choice that it, it, it doesn't make her, uh, it doesn't obsess over her pain in the relationship and it doesn't obsess with whether or not she's right or wrong. It says that she experienced that pain, it avows that pain, and it, it avows her perspective of what's happening from beginning to end. And I think that that's a great choice. I want to talk st about style and some of the visual choices in the movie as well um, that I really liked. I don't, obviously, I don't have the, of an accessible copy of the movie yet, so I can't go into great detail. Um, but there are some things that I got that I really loved stylistically. Um, the, the first is that I like the way the movie uses what's sometimes called the anthropomorphic camera, um, which is the idea that the camera becomes personified. Uh, and I think uh, when I teach this, I talk about uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, uh, where the camera has, first of all, Kubrick used Steadicam in that movie very famously. And so, and Steadicam was still relatively new at that time. And, you know, Steadicam has what's sometimes described as a hovering quality. 
uh, if you don't know, a Steadicam is essentially it's a mounted camera that has the ability to move up or down, but it remains sort of attached to the body of a person. So it doesn't have quite the jostling effect of a handheld camera, but it does have a sort of, uh, it does have some tr like trace elements of a human step or a human gait. So it does sort of look a little bit like it's floating. Um, and uh, many people, this is not a new idea that I'm putting forward. This is like a commonly discussed uh, thing about the movie. But many people talk about the way that the steady camera gives the effect of as if someone's following the camera or as if the camera has an identity or a perspective of a person who's not visible. So like there are some scenes where the steady cam follows Danny around the corridor in his bike, um, and usually the camera sort of stay keeps pace with the bike, but occasionally the camera will do things like stop short, and the bike will pull ahead by several feet and then turn around the corner out of sight, and the camera will just very slowly hover forward, where the camera really is removed from the character's movement, so that you start to wonder why the camera is acting or operating uh, separate from the characters, right? If you have a scene, traditionally the idea is that the camera is most often trained on the action of the scene. So if the scene is about a kid on a bike, the camera reasonably would trail the kid on the bike at the pace of the kid on the bike. But the fact that the camera stops and lingers and moves and has a sort of seeming agency is sometimes called anthropomorphic, meaning that it has a kind of almost a personality or an identity. And, um, you know, occasionally we think of this as like, in the, in the supernatural realm, it possibly means the idea of a presence of some entity that is watching uh, that is not visible. So it's sort of a ghostly presence. Um, we also see POV in slasher movies. And so I, I was reminded a lot of this in terms of slashers because very often slashers will use uh, point of view to position the camera in the space of the killer. And the approach of the killer will be visualized through point of view, which is also used here a few times. Um, so there's there are, there are some times where we know that the invisible man is in the room and we the camera starts to kind of look at Elizabeth Moss or look at things in a way that makes you feel like the camera is probably sort of what his perspective is. We don't know this, but we start to suspect that. And occasionally there's a, in the scene where we get back to the house for the first time and she is hiding in the closet and the camera is trained on the doorway looking into the closet and, uh, you know, and she's just inside the door kind of waiting for him to enter. Uh, the camera being trained on the door and her looking out at you know at the space where the door is waiting for him to enter um you know it, it we are we feel as though the camera's in the position of the invisible man the, the the camera is seeing what he sees he is spatially outside the door that she's inside of right and that's part of how the suspense is created even though we don't see the kind of outline of the figure we suspect based on how the camera's position that he is looking where the camera is looking uh and so i think those choices are, are really interesting and they do remind me of, respectively, of, of, of Kubrick's use of, of anthropomorphic camera and also uh, Carpenter's use of point of view to suggest a kind of ghostly presence or some sort of uh, kind of om omnipotent, onlooking presence. Like, um, 
I mean, the, the thing about uh, Michael Myers is that, as, and Halloween in particular, is that as much as the camera is used in a very specific way to give Michael Myers perspective, it's also used to, to kind of trick us in a way. Um, we, I mean, there's a, okay, so there's a, uh, the one that I remember reading is this Malcolm Turvey article that's in the Hitchcock Annual. I forget which one. But there is a Malcolm Turvey article that talks about Halloween as gameplay or as interactive viewing. Um, and I feel like that that idea was not his alone, but maybe he cited it from somewhere else. And I don't remember that reference. Uh, but I think that this is an idea that's kind of circulated a bit, which is that part of what makes Halloween so rewatchable and memorable is that uh, you you are kind of all engaged by it to look and to follow the cue of the camera and to sometimes find something in the camera's sight and sometimes not see anything in the camera's sight. Uh, that sometimes there'll be, you know, so in terms of negative space, so if you think about how a frame is composed, often it's the idea is that it should be balanced. So if there's two people, if it's a two shot, there'll be one person on the right, one person on the left. And ideally, there won't be a lot of negative space. But if you frame a shot where there's like a character doing laundry in the, in the bottom right, and then there's a window in the top left, your eye is kind of drawn to the specificity of the choice to include a wider shot that doesn't focus in on the one character and make them centered in the frame, but instead includes this empty negative space of the window. And so you start to train yourself to look at the window because Michael Myers could appear in the window, right? And sometimes he is there and the characters don't notice, but you do, or you might. And sometimes he isn't. Sometimes sometimes part of the appeal of Halloween and the way it uses, uh, you know, this kind of device is that sometimes there's a point of view shot that probably isn't Michael Myers, but because it, it comes from a position that feels like a human onlooker, we think it could be, but we don't know that it is. And sometimes we, if the camera pulls away and we see that it was him all along, and sometimes it does, and sometimes it's maybe just the camera took a particular angle that felt like a human height, uh, and we've been sort of tricked into thinking it was someone when it wasn't. And those are some of the things that the camera does here. Uh, so there'll be choices like, um, there'll be choices to film, again, like, a, for example, a wide shot of a room with the nervous anticipation that something could happen or something could move or, or you know, we should look, we should be looking, we should be watching in the frame for something. Uh, and sometimes something is there and sometimes nothing appears to be there or maybe it is and maybe I didn't see it. Uh, and maybe when I rewatch it, I'll see something else. Uh, but the using uh, using these kinds of specific wide shots that train us to look in an interactive way, like in a gameplay sense, at where the Invisible Man might be or where where something might be happening that signals his presence, is kind of riveting. And then uh, there's a couple moments that are really wide high angle shots. Like there's this one moment where Elizabeth Moss is sort of when she's basically trying to attack him head on for the first time, where she starts calling out in the living room of this house, um, the house that it's all this Hodge and, and Storm Reed and, and they've just like, uh, the Invisible Man has just hit her, the young daughter, and Aldous Hodge has responsibly taken her out of the home and it's just Elizabeth Moss in this house screaming and shouting and trying to find this person. Uh, and there's this really kind of like, the shot that kind of pans around from a high angle, looking down at the whole living room and it just keeps giving you that much more sense of 
nervousness about all of the available space. Uh, and again, sometimes there's a, the camera will turn in a personified way and something will be there. And sometimes it will turn in a personified way and nothing will be there. In the opening sequence, which is I mentioned, I think is brilliant, that you know, there is a moment where I think it's the first time this happens where the camera physically turns down the hallway and looks down the hallway without having a character assigned to that choice where we maybe believe initially that that turn uh, might signal a character coming into frame and that's part of the suspense of it but it doesn't happen nothing happens nothing is there because the camera turns like that we expect it's going to show us something important happening and it makes us worry much like that example i gave earlier in the non-spoiler the very vague uh, <laughs> my annoyingly vague example which was the dog dish being a very loud noise that makes us worry that we're gonna that something is going to happen but really it's just a dog dish and we have the loud noise and then we cut to the shot of the dog dish sliding into frame into the foreground of the shot and but in the time between the the noise and the visual we worry uh in the, the case of the camera turning as though it is uh, looking at something or as though it's going to show us that someone is approaching, but then we see nothing. And when it turns, you, your heart leaps because why would the camera be turning if there's not something to show us? There's got to be, he's got to be coming down the hallway, right? Uh, but he's not. And so it, it immediately sets up this thing, much like the, the, the carpenter's use of this in Halloween, that that's what it kind of reminded me of often is, uh, but this idea of, the camera is sometimes feels like a person or sometimes feels like it has personality. Sometimes it makes choices to look at something that is not the main action of the scene. And occasionally that choice is indicative of something important that other characters are missing. And occasionally that choice is kind of an optical trick where it makes you worried or makes you think something will be there, but there, it isn't. Um, and having that work throughout the movie and having it work, by the way, not just in one particular way. Like, it's not as though the camera movements are constantly being used in one way. There are actually multiple ways that those particular camera movements work, whether it's anthropomorphic or whether it has um, a kind of like peekaboo uh, interactive effect or game gamifying effect. Uh, there's a couple of different ways that the very intentional camera movements that are not exclusively trained on the action work uh, throughout the movie to create these really interesting effects uh, scene by scene by scene. And also to, um, I wanted to talk about, oh, I wanted to talk about uh, an, another example that I think this, this reminds me of is there's a scene in Hitchcock's Rebecca. Uh, it's a really great scene, actually. Uh, there's a scene in Hitchcock's Rebecca where, so the premise of the movie is um, that, uh, much like every female gothic, there is a fear of the, by the wife that the husband is trying to, to kill her. And uh, in this case, the husband is Laurence Olivier. And the fear is that Olivier, you know, kills his first wife and might also kill his second wife. Which, by the way, they're making a new version of Rebecca with Army Hammer. Uh, which I'm, I'm curious to see. I hope it's good. I don't know that it will be, but I hope it's good. Uh, <laughs> I forget who's playing Mrs. Danvers. Mrs. Danvers is the very obviously queer-coded lesbian uh, housekeeper or assistant, or I forget what her job title is, but she's basically the sort of servant class to the, the first Mrs. De Winter's, you know, dominant class. And uh, she's obsessed with the first Mrs. De Winter and, like, very famously uh, kind of graces her negligee, her lace negligee. <laughs> and um, uh, with a sort of seductive touch, 
Uh, I forget who uh, I forget who it is, but anyway, so they're making that as well. But in the original Rebecca, um, there is a scene, and it's the first scene where we see, uh, or where Olivier addresses how the first Mrs. De Winter died. It's basically a confession scene. He's telling the story of how his first wife died. And it's been changed from the novel where it was a murder and now it's an accident. But it is a suspicious accident, so we'll at least give them that. It's, it, <laughs> it still seems as though it probably didn't, wasn't. It, uh, it's it's like an accident that he let happen or covered up. It's kind of unclear. Uh, I forget exactly what the nature of the, I think it was a boating accident um, or something like this. I really should have rewatched the scene before I talked about it, shouldn't I? But let me just say what I remember about it. <laughs> what I remember about it is this, which is that, interestingly, as he tells the story of her death, uh, which, you know, part of the visual design does kind of undermine the story because we don't see what he says. Uh, but what we do see, the camera moves away from Olivier and it follows around the room to the different parts of the room that he's describing in his account of the incident. Uh, and basically, it, the camera sort of pans around the room and stops at the places where he's describing something to have happened. And it doesn't show us those things happening, but it shows us the place where they could have happened. And in this way, it actually shows you, it, it, it tracks along the, the, the death accidental or murder um, of the first Mrs. De Winter, but it does so with the absence of bodies. It just takes the camera and it traces the locations of her death, right? The state, it, it, he's describing verbally what happened and you are seeing the empty space where he's saying it happened. And the camera moves as though it's following the action, but nothing is there. Uh, and it's a very haunting, weird scene because it the it, it, the camera it operates as though you're looking at a death or a murder, but there's there's no visual there. It's just an, an empty room. It's just empty space. And I that was the thing that I was reminded of watching The Invisible Man um, because I felt like so often the camera is moving around a space and we have the feeling that it's a haunted space or something something is something is happening there but we don't see anything uh and the use of the empty space to make the shot feel kind of haunted and the use of camera movement that in indicates action or it seems to be following an action that we can't see uh is also i think used here in a way that's really interesting by the way this also reminds me of the end of John Carpenter's Halloween, which is, of course, the shots of all of the empty rooms where he, where, where Michael Myers might have been, or the the sort of on lingering, ongoing fear that he could be in any of these spaces, that all of these spaces, because he has this sort of like, you know, kind of creepy, unkillable, omnipotent boogeyman quality, that that all of the 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 bedroom, the living room, right, all these different spaces that we just see empty. Um, the emptiness of them is indicative of the potential fullness of them, that because we only see them as empty, we worry of what we could not be seeing. And that also was a, a thing that I was reminded of watching this movie. I also think, by the way, um, there's a lot here. It's really good. This movie's fucking good. Um, there, there's, a, there's a moment, um, 
in the scene where she is breaking out of the institution or mental facility, whatever that is, I don't know if it's a mental hospital, that might be a too generous a term. It sort of seems very uh, cold and uh, a little uh, awful. Uh, but but when she's breaking out, uh, and it kind of it kind of heralds back to the action style from Upgrade. Um, that that's great. So there's a lot here that feels very classic and very familiar, and very, you know I felt very in tune as a sort of nerd of horror movies, feeling like I was sort of catching a lot of uh, familiarity. But that stuff feels really modern and distinct. The way that the camera, uh, not only the way that the camera moves in sync with uh, the idea of a person we can't see, but also the way the camera kind of fully like cranes down and like follows a body all the way to the floor um that kind of really intense visceral uh with with what i imagine are impossible camera moves that are probably created digitally um which again was very much like if you watched Lee Winnell's Upgrade, which is his earlier film before this one, um, that was the, the style of that movie, which was a sort of sci-fi movie about a superhuman, uh, you know, killing machine uh, who had this incredible visceral physical fight style uh, that was photographed in incredible detail. Uh, the fact that that kind of a very modern um, digital cinema style that's very active and aggressive plays out in in a scene in this movie in addition to the very you know slow methodical suspense traditional camera work that i recognize from a director like hitchcock the fact that those things come together here is so amazing it's a it's an incredible it's it's a really a wide swath of of, of styles that are indicative of i think very classic work and also very contemporary work uh, that scene in particular, by the way, is just, it, I think it's intentionally the most visceral scene. I think it's, uh, it's the truest action scene of the movie. And I think it is, um, it's kind of the moment of, you know, her breaking out is her, to, you know, putting it loosely, it's kind of her moment of radicalization. It's the moment where she realizes that there is no way to solve this problem from within the system that benefits the person who is abusing her, right? That there, there is just there. You cannot use these particular measures to accomplish what you need to accomplish. It's they're not going to work for you. They are not built to work for you. So you have to operate by your own means so the fact that this escape becomes the most action oriented scene the most intense visceral scene the probably the bloodiest scene uh like this is sort of the movie's gesture toward carnage right this is this is like the movie's gesture toward uh a really visceral rebellion uh and it's a great scene I also think it's an incredibly visceral moment when uh, this invisible man is killing people, killing security guards or police or whomever is responding to this incident, and they're all pointing at her. This is an incredible image. This is, uh, they're all, all of these people are coming and pointing their, their guns at this woman, and she keeps trying to tell them that this is not her doing that. This is being done to them by this person in this position of power 
who doesn't respect them and wants to do harm to them and they don't they can't conceive of it and they literally can't see it and so they can't believe her and so they assume that it's her fault and they continue to to ask her to stop uh, as though she could as though it's her fault um it just visually it's incredibly remarkable to look at but the way that that reverberates um the way that, that reverberates is really powerful because I think there are so many people who are who are being tasked to do something and their their conception of their job is has sort of preoccupied them with blaming certain kinds of people right or policing certain kinds of people regardless of the fact that the actual trouble is coming from other sources, particularly those sources that have the most power, the most resources, and can use those resources to villainize and delegitimate populations of people who are being uh, who are being widely attacked or, or criticized or accused of being responsible for being the quote-unquote problem that everyone must face or solve. And it, it's just, it's a remarkable moment. Um, and just, you know, just... I mean, just the kind of feeling of knowing the truth and trying to speak the truth and and having that blindness pre-inform people's judgment of what you're saying or you know predispose them to distrust what you're saying um you know it just it just the simplest way to honestly to like think through how how this has worked historically is that I think it just, the simplest way is just to recognize that the white people don't experience racism. And so for a lot of them, they can't believe that racism exists because they can't see it. And men don't experience sexism. And so for most of them, or a lot of them, they don't think sexism is real because they don't see it. For, you know, for straight people, they don't experience homophobia. For, for cis people, they don't experience transphobia. Uh, and so they don't have an experience, they, they cannot see it, and so they, they don't believe it's real. Trying to tell someone that something is a problem when they cannot see it and cannot believe it for themselves is truly, truly the allegorical position of every marginalized community which has led a political movement uh, asking for equal rights. It is always about trying to articulate the position from which people are being discriminated against to people who do not see or experience that discrimination. And it, it can be a maddening position to work from. So I think that scene, besides being visually interesting and exciting as an action scene and very technologically uh, impressive, uh, it also metaphorically and allegorically feels incredibly potent. And, and that's been, I think, consistently one of the strengths of this movie. I wanna to touch on the ending. I, uh, I think that it is, uh, if we sort of follow through what I've been saying uh, to a logical end, the idea that this movie is about someone who is put through the ringer of uh, systemic abuses of power and uh, ultimately has to see her way outside of that system uh, and become relatively politically radicalized, in a sort of fantastical sense. Uh, I think that the ending is interesting because it feels like, it seems like the reluctant choice 
to operate at the level of the people who have hurt you uh, in service of the people who will come after you uh, who who need to be protected. So in this case, Elizabeth Moss looking at Storm Reed and recognizing that if if I don't stop this person, he will continue to come for these people that I care about uh, in this sort of adopted family that she has, which is really beautiful. I haven't gone into it at length, but the fact that this movie is ultimately about the friendship between a black man and a woman, I think is not accidental. I think that the fact that his child is a young daughter uh, whom she feels attached to and wants to protect is not incidental. Uh, And the fact that they have to ultimately collaborate to work against uh, uh, an uh, an individual who represents so many of the identities that intersect to enact abusive powers uh, is not incidental. Um, (laughs) uh, And anyway, so I think that it's incredibly... uh, it's it is a dark, I mean it's a dark ending that she that she she can't she can't just remove herself she ha- she has to kind of go back into the lion's den and use the technology that was used against her to end to end the the problem right that that this is the the kind of last straw it's difficult um it, and it's it's uh I think it's a great end in a way uh, because I think it is following through the metaphor that I've been looking at. Uh, it is it is often the case that in many of these political movements, uh, some amount of compromise has been needed to work through the political systems that exist because ultimately it becomes incredibly difficult to do anything else besides advocate you know, using the language that exists, using the laws that exist, using the government that exists, right? You have to start to, you have to advocate within these systems, even though they are not built for you, but you have to use them to try and advocate back to them to see and recognize and validate your equality. Uh, And that ultimately is where all these political movements, social movements tend to go, is, is, you know, toward advocacy through legal change. and, and and interestingly, for most of them, that is considered a short-term compromise. Like, it was not the goal of gay liberation to get gay marriage, but gay marriage was a an, a possibility that could be uh, could be appealed to legally using the constitution to try and set a legal precedent of equality. And so, you know, some for some people, the the compromise of using the particular systems that have oppressed you to advocate for your own value. Uh, For some people, there's a sense that that's been the goal or that's where these things have always been headed. Uh, But from their inception, I think most of these movements have been more radical than they've ended up being. And part of that has to do with just what do you do as a gay liberation movement uh, to truly structurally, radically alter government? the truth is it's very difficult to get a majority of people who don't recognize your discrimination to vote for changes that would validate and address your discrimination. Um, and so the, the metaphor of using the particular systems of power that have been used to oppress you back against your oppressors uh, is interesting, 
it's complicated. It's also not a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, <laughs> and not saying that that is the intention of the ending or that that was the point or that's what you're supposed to get from it or whatever. But that's, from my particular experience, that's the thing that I thought about, you know, at the end of the movie, which is we are in a political moment where we are trying to talk about electing people who uh, have a, a politics that is severely separated from or severely wants to uh, address the discrimination and the lack of equality that has continued for quite a number of years and to represent or to vote for people who will represent the interests of the masses rather than the uh, the most wealthy of us and I think for those reasons the ending is grim and complicated and a little hopeful uh, and and I think cathartic I mean I think the the the, the release of, of Elizabeth Moss at the end of the movie I think I I felt that it was a very emotional ending uh, and I don't know it's a lovely sort of beat that seems to hope or imagine a future of putting an end to the particular problems that we're all facing on a daily basis. And I think that's a lovely, hopeful, somewhat Hollywood ending. Uh, <laughs> also, oh, I want to just say too that there's this little thing that I love, which is that they layer throughout the the movie, uh, the script layers throughout the movie, very sort of small, fleeting gestures toward systemic sexism like when her her uh, potential future employer t refers to her as beautiful or talks about how all beautiful women go to paris or when the brother mentions that all women are interested in his brother because of his money or um i thought just having those little touches uh you know there's a there's a sense throughout the movie that there's little touches that do small things that really amplify some of the meanings of the film or just like that one the few shots of uh surveillance um like the shot of her running from the house uh and the, the shot of the security camera that sees her running which is a point of plot of evidence of you know we have footage of her leaving the house but also it's just surveillance is another theme throughout this movie the suit is made of cameras uh we part of what is an undercurrent in all of her actions is that we are ultimately all very trackable and that this is that surveillance is this other sort of means of power that's being used against her which she eventually uses against him so um you know uh whatever she we she is seen on the security camera and then she gets a cab from her phone like a lyft or an uber and the lyft or the uber has a gps so whoever has access to her can track where she's going and uh you know there's this sort of like sad moment where she tries to like block out her webcam on her laptop which is is a nice gesture but ultimately is probably very hopeless because it doesn't solve the problem that if you can access security footage you could see anybody anywhere um but then again the fact that surveillance is one of the things that's being used against her technological surveillance but then she uses the presence of the camera to implicate him in his own death um just as an undercurrent of the things that are being used against you are being used now against your oppressors or your abusers um i think that's all i have to say i'm gonna have to do more i usually don't edit these at all or hardly at all but i've had a um i've had a sporadic visitor which is that my cat jumping on the keyboard so, <laughs> so i'm gonna have to edit some of this if it sounds really choppy if this if what you've listened to is sound very choppy sounded very choppy 
uh, it's because I had to edit out a lot of recording of me yelling at the cat to please stop stepping on my keyboard. Uh, so sorry about that. <laughs> He's just eager. Um, all right, so thank you so much. If you've made it to the end of this, that's very lovely of you. Uh, if you'd like to email me, you can email me at gay4horror at gmail.com. And if you did make it all the way to the end, it is my responsibility to tell you that it, you know, it is contagious and we do recruit. So you're totally gay now. Bye! <laughs>